Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's November 30th. 1872, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. People who don't much like football often level the accusation that it's a sport where very little happens and there really isn't very much scoring. And so it was on this day in 1872 when the first ever international football match ended in an exciting, tense, end-to-end and at times truly spectacular nil-all draw. Yeah, but you didn't mention it was between England and Scotland. I mean, that's quite a good result for Scotland. It may have felt (laughs) underwhelming at the time, but if only they'd known, that would go on to be a pretty favourable result. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And although the nil-nil draw was a depressingly familiar result, the game itself, as it was played, would be very different to what we would recognise today. Not least that Scotland and England played six and eight forwards, respectively, with just a couple of defenders' piece. Throw-ins went to the first team to touch the ball after it went out of bounds and the crossbar was a piece of tape. Yeah, I mean, this is the really interesting thing that at this stage in football history, a lot of it's still being codified. It had only recently been worked out, for example, that you couldn't catch the ball with your hands like a mark in Australian rules football and get a free kick. The FA who organised this international had only been formed nine years earlier in 1863 and their first point of order was to create a laws of the game. And when they sat down to come up with these rules, you had representatives from all the different schools, universities, football clubs who all had basically their own rules. And lots of them considered carrying the ball and hacking, i.e. kicking at the shins of the person carrying the ball, to be core elements of football. I mean, it's interesting that the rules of the game are not assumed to be generally known because if you read the match report from the Glasgow Herald at the time, uh, it says, During the whole of the first three quarters of an hour, the half of the time for play, the match was very (laughs) evenly and toughly contested, splendid runs being made by men on both sides. I just love the idea that, like, the journalist has to point out what half time is because now, I mean, everyone in Britain over the age of about six, whether you like football or not, you will know Yes. That a football match is 90 minutes and halftime is 45 minutes in. That does not need to be explained to the reader. Yeah, and the Guardian's match report, which ran to a total of 124 words, <laughs> also mentioned the length of the game. It goes like this. The game, which occupied an hour and a half, was vigorously contested, and when time was called, the umpires ruled that the match was drawn. If people knew the rules already, you could cut out a whole chunk of that and say a bit more about the match, <laughs> you know, add a bit of colour or flavour. And when Charles Alcock, who was the FA secretary, when he extended the invitation for the game to Scotland, he specified in his invite that they only wanted to play against 11 players and no more. Well, there had been previous England-Scotland matches in London, so they had sort of dipped their toes in this. But the reason that those dates aren't commemorated on an important podcast like ours is that in those cases, the entire Scottish team had been chosen by the English from London. 
So it was deemed not to count as an actual national team. So they were basically expats that lived in London <laughs> that played, and no one watched it, only their family and friends. I mean, I'm not saying that the Scottish team was unrepresentative, but their captain was Sir James Kirkpatrick, 8th Baronet of Closeburn, and two players were MPs, including the son of sitting Prime Minister William Gladstone. whereas this match that we're commemorating today was marketed in the newspapers as an international and far from only being friends and family that turned up the stadium was at full capacity of 4,000 but sure enough within six years games were regularly attracting 15,000 people to Hampton Park where they were regularly playing these Scotland versus England matches and by the middle of the 1890s 57,000 people crowded into Parkhead to see the the game take place the Scottish FA hadn't actually been formed at this point in 1872 it'd be formed the following year which actually led to a bit of a problem when it came to organizing this match because while the FA in England were in charge of organizing the England team in Scotland it ended up falling to Queen's Park who were the leading Scottish club at the time and they were actually one of the only clubs that was playing according to FA rules and what ended up happening was that Queen's Park supplied all of the players for the Scotland team. <laughs> so it meant that it was commented upon in the press that they had very good teamwork. It's like, yeah, because they're a team. They're an actual team. <laughs> and they also supplied the uniforms. So the reason that Scotland now wear dark blue in international competition was because Queen's Park wore dark blue in international competition. Though one thing that they no longer wear, which I think would have been fabulous at the time, was that both teams wore hats, the English wore caps, and the Scots wore red cowls, which would have made them look like this sort of group of athletic elves you know say that's like what monks best. wear right they're basically wearing like <laughs> woolen shawls <laughs> yeah and to be clear about just how shonky this was because you're saying you know queen's park wore blue so scotland wore blue because they played for queen's park it's not just that they liked blue they were literally wearing their queen's park shirts right uh, and the sister of the player david wotherspoons had embroidered the lion rampart over the queen's park badge on their jerseys <laughs> so it's pretty budget affair when you're playing for your country uh, mind you the <laughs> English players warmed up while smoking pipes and cheroots and comprised four players from Oxford University as opposed to an actual football team, a goalkeeper from Hertfordshire Rangers, no me neither, and a striker from the first Surrey Rifles. (laughs) Well, it was interesting that you mentioned budget because the match was being played in Glasgow, so in Scotland, and Queen's Park earlier that year had been in the FA Cup semi-finals. They played Wanderers and that match had ended in a draw. And what happened was Queen's Park couldn't afford to travel back down to London to play a second match. So they ended up just pulling out of the competition and Wanderers went on to win the FA Cup. So Queen's Park must have felt quite annoyed about this. They're probably looking forward to having a match on home turf. Except it wasn't at their stadium. It was held at the West of Scotland Cricket Club, which is kind of hilarious for such a significant event in the history of a much bigger sport than cricket. (laughs) But the first few international matches were held at cricket clubs. There was one at the Oval then in London when England actually enjoyed a 4-2 victory over the Scots. That was uh, the following year, uh, 1873. So that one is the first goal in an international game because this, this was a goalless draw. But that codification of the game that we were talking about earlier even went as far as being to do with the length and width of uh, of fields. And I suppose, you know, if you start out playing on a cricket pitch or whatever mm. piece of flattish grass you can find, then obviously that's still an issue. It's funny today that so many of the very famous pitches are still of varying widths. Pretty much every club in England in the Premier League plays on a pitch of a different width. So, you know, things still haven't totally been laid down. And nowadays, though, a photographer does bother to show up. 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> they'd booked yeah. one for this event, <laughs> this historic event <laughs> in football history. Uh, but there was no agreement on how the pictures would be sold and who the copyright belonged to, so he just didn't bother showing up. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I mean, that was a bad choice. We would still be looking at those photos now had he done and in terms of how the teams performed, even though neither team scored a goal, the Scotland side were praised in the press for something that I think we would consider kind of a default part of football now. They were praised for passing the ball, which was yeah. something that was actually quite new. It was called the combination game at the time. I'm no football expert, but it seems from my research that the standard thing, kind of like, you know, if someone throws the ball to you in rugby, you're supposed to sort of try and run to the end yourself and you only kind of pass if you absolutely have to. Mm. Like that was how they were playing football. So when you got the ball you would try and dribble it up to the goal and score and so there was praise in the press for Scotland's use of this clever it was you know it was considered scientific football that you would pass to your teammates and get the ball up to the other end that way I presume the match would have looked something like an under sixes game if you've ever been to like one of those where it's just a mass of kids following the ball around all around the pitch. That's the sort of vision that I have in my brain of what this game would have looked like. Complete with the homemade jerseys. Yeah, exactly. And oranges at halftime. <laughs> I had a quick look into what the first international match was of any sport. And it was an 1844 cricket match between mm. the US and Canada. Wow. Yeah. Not cricketing nations, really. Not now. Canada at the time was a British dominion. So it was kind of like a US versus mm. the British Empire kind of thing. That was probably the pinnacle of their cricketing interest, wasn't it? You have to keep in mind that baseball didn't become popular, I think, until after the Civil War, and that was in the 1860s. So at this point, cricket was still, you know, the go-to batting sport in the you United a, States. You have a ball, you have a bat, you've got to do something with it. Did it finish nil all? <laughs> <laughs> Tomorrow. The modern post-World War II plastic gnome is basically a Disney dwarf, isn't it? Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors.